patients were like him. He's a grand sort. This, I thought, was vetting at its best. An easy, trouble-free case, a nice farmer, and a docile patient who was a picture of equine beauty. A picture I could have looked at all day. I didn't want to go away, though other calls were waiting. I just stood there, half listening to Mr. Kettlewell's chatter about the imminent lambing season. Ah, well, I said at length, I must be on my way. I was turning to go when I noticed that the farmer had fallen silent. The silence lasted for a few moments. Then he said, He's dothering a bit. I looked at the horse. There was the faintest tremor in the muscles of the limbs. It was hardly visible, but as I watched, it began to spread upwards, minute by minute, until the skin over the neck, body and rump began to quiver. It was all very slight, but there was no doubt it was gradually increasing in intensity. What is it? said Mr. Kettlewell. Oh, just a little reaction. It'll soon pass off. I was trying to sound airy, but I wasn't so sure. With agonizing slowness, the trembling developed into a generalized shaking of the entire frame, and this steadily increased in violence as the farmer and I stood there in silence. I seemed to have been there a long time, trying to look calm and unworried, but I couldn't believe what I was seeing. This sudden, inexplicable transition. There was no reason for it. My heart began to thump, and my mouth turned dry, as the shaking was replaced by great shuddering spasms that racked the horse's frame. His eyes, so serene a short while ago, started from his head in terror, while foam began to drop from his lips. My mind raced. Maybe I shouldn't have mixed those injections, but he couldn't have this fearful effect. It was impossible. As the seconds passed, I felt I couldn't stand much more of this. The blood hammered in my ears. Surely he would start to recover soon. He couldn't get worse. I was wrong. Almost imperceptibly, the huge animal began to sway. Only a little at first, then more and more, till he was tilting from side to side like a mighty oak in a gale. Oh, dear God, he was going to go down and that would be the end. And that end had to come soon. The cobbles shook under my feet as the great horse crashed to the ground. For a few moments he lay there, stretched on his side, his feet pedalling convulsively. Then he was still. Well, that was it. I had killed this magnificent horse. It was impossible. Unbelievable. But a few minutes ago that animal had been standing there in all his strength and beauty, and I had come along with my clever new medicines, and now there he was, dead. What was I going to say? I'm terribly sorry, Mr. Kettlewell. I just can't understand how this happened. My mouth opened, but nothing came out, not even a croak. And, as though looking at a picture from the outside, I became aware of the square of farm buildings with the dark, snow-streaked fells rising behind under a lowering sky, aware of the biting wind, the farmer and myself, and the motionless body of the horse. I felt chilled to the bone and miserable, but I had to say my piece. I took a long, quavering breath, and was about to speak when the horse raised his head slightly. I said nothing, nor did Mr. Kettlewell, as the big animal eased himself onto his chest, looked around for a few seconds, 
and got to his feet. He shook his head, then walked across to his master. The recovery was just as quick, just as incredible, as the devastating collapse, and he showed no ill effects from his crashing fall onto the cobbled yard. The farmer reached up and patted the horse's neck. You know, Mr. Harriet, them spots have nearly gone. I went over and had a look. That's right. You can hardly see them now. Mr. Kettlewell shook his head wonderingly. Aye. Well, it's a wonderful new treatment. But I'll tell you, Summit. I hope you don't mind me saying this, but... He put his hand on my arm and looked up into my face. I think it's just a bit drastic. I drove away from the farm and pulled up my car in the lee of a dry stone wall. A great weariness had descended upon me. This sort of thing was not good for me. I was getting on in years now, well into my thirties, and I couldn't stand these shocks like I used to. I tipped the driving mirror down and had a look at myself. I was a bit pale, but not as ghastly white as I felt. Still, the feeling of guilt and bewilderment persisted, and with it, the recurring thought that there must be easier ways of earning a living than as a country veterinary surgeon. Twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week, rough, dirty and peppered with traumatic incidents like that near catastrophe back there. I leant back against the seat and closed my eyes. When I opened them a few minutes later, the sun had broken through the clouds, bringing the green hillsides and the sparkling ridges of snow to vivid life, painting the rocky outcrops with gold. I wound the window down and breathed in the cold, clean air, drifting down, fresh and tangy, from the moorlands high above. A curlew cried, breaking the enveloping silence, and on the grassy bank by the roadside I saw the first primroses of spring. Peace began to steal through me. Maybe I hadn't done anything wrong with Mr. Kettlewell's horse. Maybe antihistamines did sometimes cause these reactions. Anyway, as I started the engine and drove away, the old feeling began to well up in me, and within minutes it was running strong. It was good to be able to work with animals in this thrilling countryside in northeastern England. I was lucky to be a vet in the Yorkshire Dales. There is no doubt that a shock to the system heightens the perception. With my heart still fluttering as I drove away from Mr. Kettlewell's to begin the rest of my morning round, it was as though I was seeing everything for the first time. In my daily work, I was always aware of the beauty around me. I had never lost the sense of wonder that had filled me when I had my first sight of Yorkshire. But this morning, the magic of the Dales was stronger than ever. My eyes strayed again and again over the towering flanks of the fells, taking in the pattern of walled green fields won from the yellow moorland grass. And I gazed up at the high tops with the thrill of excitement that always came down to me from that untrodden land. After visiting one isolated farm, I couldn't resist pulling my car off the unfenced road and climbing with my beagle diner to the high country that beckoned me. The snow had disappeared almost overnight, leaving only runnels of white lying behind the walls. 
It was as though all the scents of the earth and growing things had been imprisoned and were released now by the spring sunshine in waves of piercing sweetness. When I reached the summit, I was breathless and gulped the crystal air greedily, as though I could never get enough of it. Here there was no evidence of the hand of man, and I walked with my dog among the miles of heather, peat marshes and bog pools, with the black waters rippling and the tufts of rushes bending and swaying in the eternal wind. As the cloud shadows flew over me, racing on the wind, trailing ribbons of shade and brightness over the endless browns and greens, I felt a rising exhilaration at just being up there on the roof of Yorkshire. It was an empty landscape where no creature stirred, and all was silent except the cry of a distant bird. And yet, I felt a further surge of excitement in the solitude, a tingling sense of the nearness of all creation. As always, the siren song of the lonely uplands tempted me to stay, but the morning was wearing on, and I had several more farms to visit. It was with a lingering feeling of fulfilment that I finished my last call and headed for my town of Darby. Its square church tower pushed above the tumbled roofs of the little town as I came down the dale. Soon I was driving through the cobbled marketplace with a square of fretted roofs above the shops and pubs that served its 3,000 inhabitants. In the far corner I turned down Trengate towards the surgery and drew up at the three stories of mellow brick and climbing ivy of Skeldale House, my workplace, and happy home where Helen and I had brought up our children. The memories came back of the unforgettable times when my partner Siegfried Farnan and his brother Tristan had lived and laughed there with me in our bachelor days. Now they were both married with their families in their own homes. Tristan had joined the Ministry of Agriculture, but Siegfried was still my partner. And for the thousandth time, I thanked heaven that both the brothers were still my close friends. My son Jimmy was ten now, and my daughter Rosie, six, and they were at school. But Siegfried was coming down the steps, stuffing bottles into his pockets. Ah, James, he cried, I've just taken a message for you. One of your esteemed clients, Mrs. Bartram. Puppy is in need of your services. He was grinning as he spoke. I smiled ruefully in reply. Oh, fine. You didn't fancy going there yourself, did you? No, no, no. My dear boy, wouldn't dream of depriving you of the pleasure. He waved cheerfully and climbed into his car. I looked at my watch. I still had half an hour before lunch, and Poppy was only walking distance away. I got my bag and set off. The heavenly aroma of fish and chips drifted out on the summer air. I felt a quick stab of hunger as I looked through the shop window at the white-coated figures with their wire scoops, lifting out the crisply battered haddocks and laying them out to drain by the golden mounds of chips, those enticing morsels lovingly known in America as French fried potatoes. The lunchtime trade was brisk, and the line of customers moved steadily round the shop, gathering up the newspaper-wrapped parcels, some hurrying home with them, others shaking on salt and vinegar before an alfresco meal in the street. I always had my gastric juices titillated when I visited Mrs. Bartram's dog in the flat above the fish and chip shop, and I took another rewarding breath as I went down the alley and climbed the stairs. Mrs. Bartram was in her usual chair in the kitchen, fat, massive, deadpan, the invariable cigarette dangling from her lips. She was throwing chips from her bag in her lap to her dog, Puppy, who was sitting opposite her. He caught them expertly, one after the other. Poppy 
belied his name. He was an enormous, shaggy creature of doubtful ancestry and with a short temper. I always treated him with respect. I said, he's still rather fat, Mrs. Bartram. Haven't you tried to change his diet as I advised? Remember, I said he shouldn't really be fed solely on fish and chips. She shrugged and a light shower of ash fell on her blouse. Oh, I, I did for a bit. I cut out the chips and just gave him fish every day, but he didn't like it. Loves his chips, he does. I see. I couldn't say too much about the diet because I had a feeling that Mrs. Bartram herself ate very little else. It would have been tactless to point out that big chunks of battered fried fish didn't constitute a slimming regime. Her figure, like her dog's, bore witness to the fact. In fact, as I looked at the two, they had a great similarity. Sitting there, bolt upright, facing each other. Both huge, immobile, but giving an impression of latent power. Fat dogs are often lazy and good-natured. But a long succession of postmen, newsboys and door-to-door -door salesmen had had to take desperate evasive action as Puppy turned suddenly into a monster, baying at their heels. I had one vivid memory of a brush vendor, cycling unhurriedly down the alley with his wares dangling down from the handlebars, slowing down outside the flat. Then, when Puppy catapulted into the street, taking off like the winner of a Tour de France. Well, what's the trouble, Mrs. Bartram? I asked, changing the subject. It's his eye. It keeps running. Oh, yes. Yes, I see. The big dog's left eye was almost completely closed, and a trickle of discharge made a dark track down the hair of his face. It made his appearance even more sinister. There's some irritation here. Probably an infection. It would have been nice to find the cause. There could be a foreign body in there, or just a spot of conjunctivitis. I reached out my hand to pull the eyelid down, but Puppy, without moving, fixed me with his good eye and drew his lips back from a row of formidable teeth. I withdrew my hand. Yes. Yes. I'll have to give you some antibiotic ointment, and you must squeeze a little into his eye three times a day. You'll be able to do that, won't you? Cause I will. He's as gentle as an owl sheep. Without expression, she lit another cigarette from the old one and drew the smoke down deeply. I can do anything with him. Good. Good. As I rummaged in my bag for the ointment, I had the old feeling of the feet. But there was nothing else for it. It was always long-range treatment with Puppy. I had never tried anything silly like taking his temperature. In reality, I'd never laid a finger on him in my life.